Good morning. I'm going to read from Mark uh, 5, 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she had said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has been made well, made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came to the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, I don't, I don't even know if I introduced myself earlier. My, my name's Cameron. If I haven't met you before, welcome. So glad you're here. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, for those of you that were here, you know, we, uh, we took, we've been in the Gospel of Mark now for months. Uh, I guess we started it back in February, maybe? Um, we've, we've made it thus far about five chapters through, so that gives you a sense of our pace. Um, Taking a few breaks, we'll continue to take breaks, but we're back after a three-week break uh, to the gospel according to Mark. Um, and we just do this because we believe uh, the, the scriptures that have been passed down for about 2,000 years now are the word of God. Uh, and there's really, when thinking about how to kind of launch, I mean, and this wasn't the first thing we did as a church community, but it was in our first, you know, within our first year that we started the gospel of Mark. We just don't think there's any better way to kind of find our footing as a church community than to take a long time in a gospel about Jesus to just repeatedly week after week after week see the person and the character and the nature of this Jesus that hopefully most of us self-consciously have made a decision to follow. Um, and if you're here and you have not made a decision to follow Jesus, that's wonderful. We're so glad you're here. We hope this, like for the next however long it takes us to keep working through Matthew, or Mark, I'm sorry, uh, will be part of you, helpful for you, like coming to see who he is, what he's about, and why he's worth following. Um, 
So we pick back up in chapter 5, which Katie just read for us, verses 21 through 43. If you have a Bible, make sure you turn there. Um, but but we just we, we get right into the story. And, and in the previous section that we looked at four weeks ago, um, if you recall, just very briefly, Jesus had gotten in a boat and he had left across this little lake, but it's called the Sea of Galilee. You can think of it more of a, a small lake. But they, they, they went out on the water, a couple of boats, and this huge storm happened. And Jesus, with, the, with a simple word, uh, calmed the waters. Everyone thought they were going to die. And he said, no, nope, everything's fine. He calmed the waters, uh, and they were able to continue on. And then when they landed and they got to their destination, they got to a non-Israelite-controlled portion uh, of the region that's on the sea. Uh, and right when they got off, Jesus encountered this like horror movie of a scenario where there was this guy who it turned out was possessed by like a legion of demons. Uh, and he was cutting himself and he had broken all these chains and no one could subdue him. And it was just this creepy and weird scene. Uh, but of course, Jesus, uh, with simple speaking of, of a few words, uh, heals this man, releases him from his oppression, and then is just hanging out with them, much to the sort of disturbance of the town. There's this also, also this whole other thing with like a few thousand pigs that got drowned by the demons. It's weird, weird story. Uh, but it's right there, so we have to, we have to make sense of it. Um, so we did that, and then the, the townspeople are like, get out of here, we don't want you around here. So Jesus is like, okay, they get in the boat, and then this story is when they land back in Israelite territory. Um, so what we see here are that crowds like for the last several chapters, the crowds, anywhere Jesus goes, crowds are just continually pressing in upon him, um, just, just really getting up in his business. Um, and that's the case here. They get back to the area and the crowds are there um, and he's trying to get back onto the land and they're pressing in from the moment he returns and then this man comes up. This man named Jairus or Jairus, you could pronounce it either way. Uh, Jairus approaches Jesus in a moment of severe desperation. And what, what do we know about him? It says he's a ruler of the synagogue. So this is kind of a, you know, his responsibilities were possibly building maintenance and security over the synagogue. He might have gotten the scrolls that they were going to use for scripture reading. Uh, he might have arranged the Sabbath, Sabbath worship and picked out scripture readers and prayers and pre preachers, that kind of thing. He's kind of administrating and protecting the synagogue. The kind of person, if, as we've been reading Mark, who you would assume wants nothing to do with Jesus. Most of Israel's leaders are opposed to Jesus. They're challenging him. They've already started the plot to kill him just a couple of chapters ago. The, the agenda is set. We're going to kill this Jesus because he's upending everything that we're about. But this guy comes to Jesus and he, he tells Jesus that he has a little daughter. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. And we're told later in the story that she was 12 years old. Luke tells us, the gospel according to Luke tells us that, that uh, this was his only daughter. Um, and we see the desperation immediately. It says that this man fell at his feet and begged Jesus to come and to heal. And there, there, is, there are a few things in this world that, that stir up a sense of desperation like a suffering child. Um, Tragically, there are people in our own community that, that here at Dwarf Hope Northeast that have lost children, um, one quite recently. Um, and we just state it for what it is. It's a nightmare. It's some of the clearest evidence we have that in this world, things are not the way they're supposed to be. We don't get, it's, it's always so 
foolish and weird to try to rationalize something like that. It's not right. The death of a child, the suffering of a child is not right. And it rightly throws us into the thrashes of desperation as we would do anything to see that suffering relieved. That anything for this man was to go to this Jesus, we'd probably heard was some kind of miracle worker, interesting guy, he's got some strange teachings, but maybe he can do something here. You can assume a man like this was a man of some means, he probably exhausted every other avenue. So maybe Jesus can help. So he says, come with me. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And verse 24 says, and Jesus went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. I, the Bible always uses this word throng, and I don't know if I'd ever looked it up before. Anybody know what thronging is? A weird word. Almost sounds scandalous. Um, <laughs> I was like, where's this thronging crowd? Uh, it means like collapsing in and like kind of almost like crushing in. So it's, it's like a crowd that's just getting closer and closer, and we've seen that before. The crowd sort of like really getting, getting in Jesus' space and hindering him. So this man's in desperation. Can, just, can we come with me? Jesus says, yes, they go. But the crowd is still like swarming them. And you can just imagine the frustration of this father as this crowd is not letting them peacefully go where they need to go. But Jesus says, yes, let's go. But immediately, there's an interruption. Immediately, there's an interruption. Verse 25 says, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years She'd suffered much under many physicians, spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So you can imagine Jairus. He's gotten this miracle worker Jesus to come with him. They're going, the crowd's pressing in. It's probably sweaty and hot and smelly and weird. And he's just like, we gotta get to my daughter. And then suddenly, this woman comes up, and, and she, she inserts herself into the moment. With each passing moment, Jairus is probably just increasing in fear and frustration and worry and sweat. But this woman, too, is desperate. He's not the only one. Jairus is not the only one who's suffering. This woman has, too. In fact, uh, Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, but this woman, it says, has suffered from this condition for 12 years. Interesting little parallel there. She suffered from, for 12 years from what it, what it says is a discharge of blood, which is most likely a menstrual issue of some kind, just blood continually flowing from her. 12 years, 12 years this woman has had to deal with this condition. And if you know much about the you know, backdrop to this, tragically, according to Levitical law, bodily discharges related to reproduction, that includes uh, both semen for men and menstrual fluid for women. Did you think we'd be talking about Semen in church today? Not, probably not. Um, so semen and menstrual fluid both uh, caused one to become ceremonially unclean. And that's not because there's anything wrong with menstrual fluid or wrong with semen, uh, but it's related to like the life-creating power of these things and these cycles. And it just, it, it, it's not that they were sinful if, if you had menstrual fluid, but it, it, there was the ceremonial system treated, treated these things so gravely that you weren't supposed to approach the temple in the midst of them. And so all that to say, uh, no big deal if it's 
part of your regular cycle, but if you're suffering from this for 12 years, then, then this becomes like a medical issue, a physical problem, that then turns into a significant religious problem because you're kept from the temple for a decade plus. And then that turns into a social problem because if you are ceremonially unclean and you haven't been able to cleanse yourself, then anything or anyone you touch becomes unclean. And so in these small towns, it's not hard to imagine. Everyone knew that she had this thing. That's why she couldn't go to the temple. Uh, and they knew they weren't supposed to touch her. Don't get close. Stay away. So she's a social outcast because she would be preventing other people, or not, not altogether from going to the temple, but then they'd have to go and do the ritual purification all that stuff. Um, anyway, this is serious. This woman's lived a life of misery for 12 years. And not only that, it says she suffered under many physicians. So, and honestly, I, I was looking this up. There's always the fascinating stuff to get into. I was like, so what's uh, ancient Near Eastern medicine like at this time? And it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> As you might imagine, physicians' remedies were usually like based on superstitions. Like, hey, drink this like really uh, bad tasting thing and we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> like, that was basically the extent of, of, of a lot of what doctors did at the time, drinking weird potions that because they taste bad, maybe it'll do something good? I don't know. Um, so all that to say, she's blowing money on these physicians, none of which can help her. And, uh, and there you go. She's, she's continuing to suffer and, and her condition is getting worse and worse and it says that she's in fact spent all the money that she had on these stupid remedies that did nothing for her. So her physical problem turns into a religious problem, it turns into a social problem that's now turned into a financial problem as well. Um, and it's probably just worth noting this woman was the social opposite of Jairus. So Jairus was, was a leader at the synagogue. Um, he, he was a person for a number of reasons, was a person of power and privilege. And she was an outcast, probably carrying immense personal shame. She too had heard about Jesus. She had heard this guy could work miracles. She too was in the throes of desperation. And she declares, if I can even touch his garments, I'll be made well. But to go and do that was a risky move. I, I think it's obvious why now. She's unclean. What is it, what, how is this great teacher going to respond if she comes working through the crowd of people, taking all of them off, and then if she even gets to touch Jesus, how is he going to respond to this thing? So what a mess this is. This was a fearful, desperate, risky move for her. Just coincidentally, has anyone heard the Soul Stirrers song? Yeah, Sam Cooke was, was one of the singers for this gospel group, The Soul Stirrers. There's a beautiful song. It, it, it's like a really happy sounding song, but it makes me cry almost every time I listen to it. Touch the hem of his garment, go look it up about this story. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Uh, she touches his clothes and she gets there, she works her way through, who knows what people are thinking, how they're responding, but she gets to Jesus, she touches his clothes, and instantly, in her body, she recognizes She's healed. The flow has stopped. The 12-year issue is gone. Praise God. So what will Jesus do? Who is this Jesus that we all follow in a moment like this? This is the crucial question. So we keep reading. Verses 30 through 34. And Jesus 
perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Disciples are like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everyone's touching you. It's a weird question. But he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus knew immediately what had happened and he called out to have this person identify themselves. The disciples think it's weird. They don't, they don't have the eyes to see what's going on in this moment, and that's okay. And this woman was afraid. So she's, she's fear and trembling. How would Jesus respond to her? How would Jesus respond to her specifically in all her taboo, and all her uncleanliness, this outcast status, the fact that her uncleanliness could corrupt his cleanliness? So she approached him in fear, fell down, and she told him the whole truth. Maybe she told him her, her whole story, who knows? And then maybe there's a dramatic pause on Jesus' part, I don't know. He's kind of the master storyteller, it wouldn't surprise me if he paused for a moment. What's he gonna say? What's he gonna do? He says, daughter. Daughter. With that word, he welcomes her into the family of the king. He calls her daughter. He says, your faith has made you well. And this is a clarification for her that this wasn't some magic thing, like, oh, if I just can go touch the artifact that the holy man touched, like then, you know, it's just, that the, the, the power is in the thing itself. He clarifies for her, this isn't some magic incantation. It was your faith. Even this, like, primal, like, like l tiny little sliver of faith. She pr who knows what she thought or knew about Jesus? I'm assuming not much like most of the other characters in the story. She just knew, I, I think this Jesus can help me and she threw everything that she had to get to him and to touch him. That's all she knew. That's all she had. Maybe this guy can help me. I think he can and I'll risk it all to go and see. And he says, it was your faith in me that has made you well. And then she says to go, he says to go in peace. In effect, may the peace, the shalom of God be upon you as you go. And then he says, be healed of your disease. He confirms, I know what's happened. I know what's happened. Be healed. You are healed. You will be healed. He confirms what she suspected. And it raises the question, why did Jesus have to stop in this moment? Um, you know, we, we, we hold to this complex idea in, you know, Christian orthodoxy that Jesus is fully God, fully man. Uh, so he had everything necessary to be declared a full and actual human and yet at the same time to be full and actual God in that human flesh. And that's not easy, real easy to parse out beyond that. But it does raise the question, was Jesus, why didn't Jesus know what was happening? Isn't he supposed to know things like this? And I'm not because, I, I don't think that Jesus stopped and had this like, who, who was that moment because he was confused or because he didn't really know what was going on? I think it was to bring her close. 
to, to have a moment that she couldn't just slip away having experienced the blessing, but to actually bring her in close so that she could, so that he could speak life and dignity to her. And to do it publicly before all these people who probably knew her story. To not let her slip out the back, but to make a public example, not a, hopefully not in a weird and embarrassing way, but in the most beautiful way possible, that you're my daughter. I've healed you. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. This is the kind of story, just personally, that, that when I read it, uh, every time I read it, it, it makes me want to follow Jesus more closely. It makes me want to know him more deeply. It makes me want to look like him more fully. There's beauty here, friends. But there's also Jairus. It's easy to get sucked into this story, and Mark has put these together. I think because it actually happened this way, of course, but, but he's, he's highlighting these two stories together. He could have just in, talked about one or the other. He's, he's making us think about this fact that this little beautiful episode has happened in the middle of another story, right? So as this beautiful exchange is happening, Jesus is attending to this woman. He's speaking hope and life into her for the first time in 12 years. How's Jairus doing? You could imagine going, yeah, yeah, this is beautiful. This is nice. My daughter's dying. My daughter's dying. Jesus, come on. My daughter's dying. And while Jesus was still speaking, verse 35 tells us, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? The assumption is that, yeah, he can heal. He can heal the sick or whatever. Yeah, that, you know, that seems reasonable, but death has come. That great final enemy that no one has power over. I don't care how good of a miracle worker you are, how good of a magician you are, no one has power over that. Why should we bother the teacher any further? But this assumption, it, it imports humanity's limitations and humanity's impotence into God or onto God. Jesus could afford to and can afford to be unhurried like fully present in the moment, in each moment, with each person, with each need that presents itself to him, and to fully dignify each encounter without cutting it short. And in that unhurriedness, there's something for us to emulate as well. But Jesus is not limited in the same ways that we are. Jesus' command was to do not fear just believe. Even though she's dead, do not fear, only believe. So they get there. They get there. <clears throat> it says, well, verse 37, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except his inner core, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So that Jesus takes the three of them with them. They get to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus saw commotion, people wailing, weeping loudly. And when they had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. 
what Jesus said was blatantly inappropriate, right? Someone had been there probably holding this girl's hand, or maybe not, for fear of becoming unclean, I'm not sure. But they'd been there with her and they'd saw her take her last breath and they'd begun the, the typical act of publicly mourning this, this death, this great loss. And Jesus says, she's not dead, she's just asleep. What's all the weeping for? Jesus' response was inappropriate. Unless he is who he is and he's about to do what he's about to do. Unless. So he takes the parents. He says, everybody get out of here. The people that are laughing at him, scoffing, he says, get out of here. He takes Peter, James, John, and the parents into the room where she was. And here's what he did. He took her by the hand. Now here again, as unclean as it gets. The woman who'd had the issue for 12 years, that's one thing. Now it's a dead body. Once again, Jesus gets his unclean skin. He takes her by the hand. He could have kept his distance. He could have just spoken. He could have peeked his head in the room and said, wake up. <laughs> he didn't do that. He takes her by the hand. I love this image. He says, Talitha kumi. This is Aramaic for little girl arise. But it, that's how the ESV translates it. But it's a term of endearment. It's, it's kind of like almost a pet name. Uh, some commentators said a better translation would be wake up lamb, but no one really says lamb in that way. Uh, Tim Keller says he, he prefers wake up, honey. Wake up, sweetie. Holding her by the hand. Tim Keller pointed out in, in, in his little book on this, he, he, he's talking about how this is a, would be a standard greeting. This is probably the way those of you, the parents in the room, have woken up your children before. Softly, gently. Wake up, honey. It's time to get up. Tenderness, kindness, love. This is how Jesus walks this little girl back from death. Wake up, sweetie. And she did. She got up. And then Jesus told the people to get her some food, it says, which demonstrates, hey, this was for real. This wasn't some mirage. This wasn't a trick. This wasn't a ghost standing before them. But it also showed he was tuned into her needs even after this moment. Yes, rise from the dead, but also get this girl some food. She's hungry. We see the compassion of Jesus here. And that's it. It's the end of Mark chapter 5. So what can we learn from these two stories together? Well, they make a couple of really strong points, I think. One is that Jesus' favor is not dependent. I hope, I, hope this is, I hope this is the oldest news possible to you, but bears saying again, Jesus' favor is not dependent upon anyone's status or ability. The only thing that Jairus and this woman had in common was their absolute desperation and recognition that Jesus was their only hope. Apart from that, totally different social circumstances, totally, totally different experiences of like power and privilege in this society, totally different uh, degrees of comfort as they'd walked about their lives, totally different means, financial situations, you name it. But equally, crucially, they both recognized their absolute need for him. So faith is the great equalizer. 
And, and, and Mark continually, not, so, not exactly in this story, but continually a theme throughout the book has been that the people that you least expect to sort of grab, grab the correct picture of Jesus and step into faith in, in, in the right way are the people you'd least expect. And often the ones you'd most expect are the ones who have no clue, a la Israel's leaders. So in response to this story, I think some of us in this room, I don't know where you're at, um, some of us in this room maybe need to hear in this story uh, more, more than some of, the, some of the others of us that all of your goodness and all of your efforts and all of your powers and all of the things that you might bring to the table for Jesus to earn his ear are useless. It's useless. Lest Jairus think that because he was a, you know, a religious leader of some kind, Jesus was indebted to help him uh, no, no, no. Jairus had to sit patiently while Jesus attended to this woman. Your goodness, your efforts, your means are useless. But you know what the good news is? He'll respond to your faith regardless. Yes, sir. And then maybe some of us, some of us need to hear it from the other side that none of our shortcomings, none of your shortcomings, none of your failures, none of your sins, none of your doubts, whatever, will keep you from having his ear either. He'll respond to your faith regardless. Probably all of us need some combination of both of those, depending on the day. And so, for much of the Gospel of Mark, but, but culminating right here in this chapter, the, the, the miracle of miracles, and the characters in the story recognize it. Yes, you can heal. Yes, Okay, you can calm the sea. Yes, you declare that you have power and authority over sin to forgive sin. Yes, you can heal the demons. Yes, or you know, heal the demons, cast the demons out, whatever. Yes, 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 yes. But my daughter died. Let's not bother the teacher anymore. This whole theme that Mark's been building of the power and authority of Jesus culminates here when he walks this little girl through the door of death by the hand in gentleness and peace and brings her back to life. We see the culmination of this theme that Jesus alone carries the power and the authority of God. And it begs the question after we've looked at this over the month, over the last several months, again and again and again, and some of y'all might be boring. Okay, another miracle story, great. Okay, let's, let's move it. I guess we're about to move it because Mark moved it. But the, the question is, this begs the question, what do you say? What do you say? Did this Jesus have the authority over the wind and the waves? Did he have authority over the armies of demons like four weeks ago? Did he have the authority to heal the sick and the injured, to fully restore them? Did he have the authority to make the unclean clean? Did he have the authority to take the blind and give them sight? Did he have the authority to take those who were genuinely lost and declare them found? Did he have the authority to forgive the sins of every person who received it? And finally, and crucially, did this Jesus have authority over death itself? I can't answer. You have to answer that. That's what Mark is begging us now, five chapters in, to ask ourselves and to give an answer. 
And maybe some of us will answer it differently in this room. Maybe it's, I don't know, that's okay. But everything hinges on this. If Jesus did and does have authority over death itself, and he was crucified, he was killed publicly, but he is alive now, then we have to throw ourselves at his feet and not just have to, we get to, because that means that death is not final for you or for anybody. That means your deepest despair can actually be overcome. And this isn't, like, like if this is just a nice fairy tale we tell ourselves, oh, you know, Christianity is this nice thing. Well, sometimes it's a nice thing. Sometimes it's not so nice. But it's this nice thing that's kind of comfort or, uh, you know, as Mark said, is it Mark's opiate of the masses? Nice thing keeps people docile, keeps them hopeful. Uh, We don't need that. There's actual drugs for that. Like, (laughs) there's actual opiates for that. I'm serious. There are better ways to numb yourself or whatever. We don't want this Jesus if this is just a nice thing that we can kind of go along with. Oh, yes, it's very nice, and it's a nice thing to get to come here on Sunday morning (laughs) or whatever. If we're to have any hope, this story must be true. And what Mark wants you to do, and now the culmination of all these stories, now culminating here with him raising this girl from the dead, is say, what do you think? Did that happen? And can it happen for you? Will it happen for you? His answer is yes, and yes, and yes, and amen. If Jesus walked out of that grave, you too will walk out of that grave if you're in him. If Jesus lost everything, when you lose everything, there will be a day coming when all is made right and all is put back. So we leave it there. Who do you say this Jesus is? Does he have this authority? Let's pray.